You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we're, uh, we're in a series about dreams. Um, cool thing about Joseph is he's a dreamer. Daniel's a dreamer. God speaks to uh, his people through dreams at different times, and maybe even sometimes the Lord might um, speak to you with dreams and, and, and maybe even reoccur those in some cases. Uh, but speaks to Joseph in his dream at the beginning of his life, and confounded if the guy uh, had a bit of an arrogant dream, like he's got this dream where all these sheaves of wheat are bound down to him and the stars, even his mom that died in childbirth is like bound down to him. It's like, good grief, man. And it's like, have you no shame? You know, put yourself in the middle of this dream. It was accurate. It was arrogant, but it was accurate. And by the end of the dream, um, the, the players in the dream are still the same. It's the brothers. It's, it's the dad. Um, the posture is the same. So there's uh, bowing down to Joseph. But uh, the person's different. And so um, how many of you guys know that when you get out of the house and your dream is to, let's say, get married, your dream is to own a business, your dream is to start a ministry, um, there is a lot that happens to you from the place of the dream to the delivery of that dream. And a lot of the things that happen to you move you out of the center of the dream. Like you had this dream where uh, basically your husband's just there vacuuming and waiting on your hand and foot. I don't know what he's doing in your dream. I never had a dream like that, you know? Or uh, some of us guys, you know, we're Rocky Balboa, and so Adrian's in the crowd, and we're beating somebody up, and she's, like, cheering us on, you know. We're at the center of the dream. You know, we always dream to be Paul. We never dream to be Ringo. And the dream isn't inaccurate. We are born with eternity in our hearts to be significant, to uh, have safety, and to do something meaningful in this life. Uh, and so it's not that the dream that changes is the dreamer. The dreamer has to die for the dream to come alive. And he's actually trying to release the dream uh, in your life, the dream of Eden, the dream of the kingdom of heaven, of righteousness, peace, and joy in your life. Those are not bad things, just not that you are at the center of it, that his son is at the center of it. And so over the course of Joseph's life, he gets raised up into Egypt, into the highest level, into the highest empire, so he can feed the nations, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. He wants you fostering kids. He wants you volunteering, um, giving your life away to the nations. He wants you serving and discipling. He wants you listening and crying and caring and doing a bunch of stuff that gives you no credit and gives God glory. And you will never be satisfied without it. And if you're dreaming of something else other than that, it's a nightmare without him. And we'll find that out pretty quickly. And so the, the name of this <clears throat> sermon uh, in Genesis 38, this is one of these days you should be happy you're not me. Because uh, we're going through the Bible left to right. And sometimes the Bible talks about topics that I don't want to talk about you don't want to hear about. And a lot of Genesis series you'll see goes right from 37 to 39 for a reason. Because I'm too dumb enough to skip this chapter. And uh, it is the nightmare of sexuality. It is what happens when little Adams and Eves turn in on themselves, and instead of having a kingdom of heaven, they create a kingdom of Adam and a kingdom of Eve competing against each other rather than cooperating. And ultimately, the nightmare defined for us in the chapter of Genesis 38 is a, a family that has biological life but is spiritually dead. This would be the nightmare. This is what would happen of a man or a woman's sexuality is we would have biological life. We'd have a 401K. We'd have safety. We'd have maybe a little vacation time. We'd have food on the table. We got air conditioning. We're doing great but inside it's spiritually dead. We could have uh, biological safety and your kids are doing fine and they're in the bubble and they know people that are like you guys and you keep them safe and all that kind of thing and secure, but they're prayerless, they're missionless, they're purposeless. They're in the center of their own dream and so they're spiritually dead. They're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. You have a a love life and your sexuality, you know, is is, uh, something that biologically looks like sexuality, but in the heart of it, there's no intimacy. It's just transactional. And there isn't actually spiritual life that's going on in that room. There's no fellowship going on in that household. And so you have a biologically healthy, thriving home that is spiritually dead. And how many homes are like that? Either inside the church or outside of the church. And so so the reason why this chapter exists is because Judah, uh, the chapter of Judah in, in Genesis 38, is the nightmare that gets us ready 
to see the dream of Joseph. Joseph is going to be tested by the best-looking woman in all the land, Potiphar's wife. And several times she's going to come after him, and he's going to be tested and tried and not sinned the way that Jesus did. And so um, we're meant to see this juxtaposition of a nightmare getting woken up into a dream. We're supposed to see how the, the dream that we paint where we're at the center is a nightmare so that we are able to see, once you, how many of you guys know, once you recognize the nightmare, you can finally see the dream for what it's supposed to be. How many of you guys have woken up from a nightmare before and been thankful for life, right? You're like, I'm so glad that my head isn't a potato or whatever it is that you're dreaming about. You're thankful. And so it is that he is, he's trying to show us and reveal us that it wouldn't be too late. I, I heard this uh, philosopher guy, Christian guy, uh, talk to an atheist, and the atheist uh, kind of smugly asked him, well, what do you think hell is like? And by no means, I don't think the answer was supposed to be this exhaustive uh, treatise on, you know, what it means to be, you know, in hell. But he said that one of the things about hell is hell is a place of extreme regret. Hell is not so much even a place of resentment towards God's holiness, as though you're mad at God as this holy fire that just comes and burns you up. His holiness is his love, it's justice, it's perfectness, it's set-apartness. And so he said that hell is really the person that you are meeting the, pe- the person that you should have been. That's the gnashing of teeth. It's the person you are meeting holiness, perfect love, perfect justice. If I was 1% holy, if I was even 1% like Jesus, Leo wouldn't have had to suffer, but he did because I'm not like him. And so hell is this, it's this reckoning. It's coming to the, to the, into the face of a holy God. And this is all knees and every knee and every tongue will confess and bow down. No one's able to hide. All things are revealed and we all recognize one thing is sure. He is holy and we are not. That's what hell is like. It's to be consumed by that reality that he was, he was the doctor, not the police officer, and I was ruining myself, and he was saving me from my nightmare. He said the opposite is true, that heaven is when we come to the place and we realize in the scope of all of our, our lives and our timelines that who he's made me to be, it's the person Jesus has made you to be through atonement, through justification, through sanctification, meeting the person you could have, should have, or would have been without him. And how would you respond to, to somebody like that? And what kind of pride could ever exist in an environment like that to see who I could have and should have and would have been outside of his saving grace, waking me up from my own nightmare? He's not the one that's putting me in a nightmare, and this world isn't the one that's making the nightmare. I designed it. I'm the architect of my own nightmare because I wanted to be the center of every party. And so Jesus is saving us from this dream. Not the least of these is this Adam and Eve dream. And so um, just a, a bit of a review, as you guys remember from earlier in the series, Genesis 2 says that Adam and Eve were not meant for themselves and Marriage isn't just meant for friendship. It's meant for holiness. It's meant to extend his rule and his reign, to be fruitful and to be multiplied. Uh, Marriage should be exhausting. It should be tiring. It should be invigorating. It should be difficult, and it shouldn't be about us. It should be about him. And so working and keeping turned into working versus keeping, that Adam tried to gain the reins for himself because he was cursed, and he couldn't get his work to find significance in, that he never goes home, and he's always trying to get his glory and his purpose and his image from his job. He marries his job. And he wastes his blessing and his inheritance for 50 and 60 years and never comes home for his own legacy. So he marries an Adam dream. Meanwhile, Eve wants to make Adam in her image, and she creates an Eve dream. And she does all of the, uh, the keeping, but doesn't lose sight of, of, of the taking, of the going and, and, and the making of disciples and, and, and the generativity and the pioneering. She's, she's caught in this tension. Like it says, she has angst in childbirth, which means it's not just pushing out the baby. It's, will I get pregnant? Will I have a husband? Will the baby survive? Will they die? Will they get in a car crash? You know, 25 years old and you haven't texted me yet today. And so you must be, something must be wrong. Like it never ends. And the scripture says that in that angst and anxiety, she desires the man instead of Jesus and tries to get out of the man what Jesus was only supposed to give her. So she pines after this strength and this blessing because she can never quite get it home and creates a, a, a garden of 
of Eve instead of a Garden of Eden. Creates an an Eve kingdom rather than a kingdom of heaven. And so instead of working and keeping, you get working or keeping. You get Adam or Eve, and there's competition and conflict rather than harmony. This is where the fig trees uh, come into play. And so what we're about to read is a nightmare. It is an absolute hyperbole, and it's a nightmare. And I'll just cut straight to the chase, and you're going to... This viewer discretion is advised. This is, this is not for kids, okay? This is definitely a rated R scripture, and I didn't write it. Uh, you know? But it's Hugh Hefner in the, in the Playboy Mansion. It's that the guy keeps trying to get his blessing from sex. And so the people he pursues in his heart, his mind, and his actions that he flirts with are younger and younger as he gets older and older until he's just a dirty old man. And he never gets his blessing. And it's Eve giving up her integrity and her character and her life and, and her blessing and her inheritance that God was going to give her for free, pining after men, trying to find some satisfaction out of that and becoming a prostitute in the process. It's heavy language, right? But prostitution just means transaction. And what, at what point do our families in this Eve versus Adam battle become transaction and not relational? At what point do they become biological without spiritual? And what point are they making kingdoms in their own image as opposed to trusting Jesus for his image? This is, this is the nightmare. He wants us woken up. He wants us ready for Genesis 39 by giving us the nightmare of Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man named Adalim, or of Adalim named Hira. Um, when you go to weddings, the, the speech for the maiden of honor is always like super sweet and like, I just remember we play teacups and can't wait to get married. And then that... You get that drinking buddy up there who's just off his handle. Like, the the speeches are so different. And men are trying to run from responsibility. And your husband has a friend, and he's no good. And maybe your job is just to keep, maybe your whole purpose in life is to keep him away from Ted or whatever his name is. He's no good. He's a drinking buddy. He's not good. And he's running away from responsibility. And he's convincing your husband that the dream is somewhere outside of his home. And his job is to keep his wife off his back so that he can go get the real dream. So this is him. He's going to take him down to Mardi Gras right now. Okay? And says, there Judah, with this guy, meets this daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. That's the, that's the dad's name, doesn't mention the wife's name. And he married her and made love to her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. Not a good start for uh, the first son, right? So 80% of our children are going to go out that door and uh, after church once they turn 18, and 60% will not come back. And probably in between the ages of 18 to 35, when they come back, when they finally have kids and they need to get their life right, they're going to marry somebody they probably shouldn't have married. Right? So that's the story of what's going on. He's going off. He's going into Canaanite, and he's going to go marry the world and have kids with the world and have kids that are worldly, that are biologically alive but physically dead, and they're all going to die. So that's Ur. Verse 4, she conceived again, gave birth to a son named Onan. Verse 5, she gave birth to another son named uh, Sheila. That guy had a rough time um, in, public, in private school, let alone public school. Sheila is this guy's name. It was Kezib, and she gave birth to him. In Kezib, she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, named, uh, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a harsh passage, but essentially it's saying we're all dead. A hundred out of a hundred people die without Jesus. They die without Jesus. They, they never have life. And so when we pick the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as opposed to trusting in Jesus, the, the tree of life, we choose death on ourselves, And so whether he died on Tuesday or Wednesday, doesn't matter. He was already dead. Um, and so he was not able to have the blessing or be a blessing. And so how many, how many men 
Maybe they go off and they uh, get married in college and they are not marrying with Jesus in the center of their life and they just get married because she was hot and we're just going for it. And uh, they raise their kids um, how to fist fight, how to fix a boat, how to mow the lawn, how to get a good, good job, job resume, how to talk to a girl. Never taught their kids how to pray. What would it mean for a man to go raise his kids in the world but not in the spirit? It's far too many of us. Uh, Jesus is the only masculine man, and there's plenty of books about what a real man is. A real man is a, you know, he can fix stuff or whatever, he cooks, a real man's sensitive and he listens, or whatever it is, you know, it's like this image that we want to create, and usually it's the gutter that I'm running away from the way that my dad was super tough, so I'm going to make him sensitive, and my dad was passive, so I'm going to make him strong and tough, and we create all these other images, but the only image is Jesus. A man is somebody that trusts Jesus for life, period. If you're going as a man, you're here to be a man, to trust Jesus for life. And if you're marrying a man and you want to be married and, and have, uh, have a family, then marry somebody that trusts Jesus for life. That's masculinity. That's what true masculinity is. And all men that don't trust Jesus for life are dead. That's what it's saying. So verse 8, Judah has a second son, and he tells the second son after the death of his first son to sleep with your brother's wife to fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise offspring for your brother. So this isn't even the weird part yet. So it's already weird, but like this is actually a pretty typical biblical standard that uh, if you have three sons, that if the first one dies, the second one is supposed to marry the wife to give them a son. And uh, that is because Tamar here, the wife, is owed a double portion inheritance. So you can't just go get welfare and you can't go get a job. You, that's the way that you, through family and heritage and lineage and all those sorts of things. And so the first son, Ur, was supposed to have a double portion well, what it's saying, about to say, is that uh, Onan does not want to sleep with uh, Tamar uh, and get her pregnant because that means that's cutting in on his piece of the pie, right? So that's what's going on here. And so verse 9, so Onan knew that the child would not be his, so uh, whenever he slept with her, I'm going to read this one time and never say it again, uh, <laughs> with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground to keep from providing the offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also, okay? So this is the curse, the curse of man is that there's toil and labor. And no matter how hard I work, I can never get my job to work the right way. There's always too, many, uh, too much politics, there's bad bosses, there's you know, bad markets, and I just cannot seem to get, no matter how many Mondays I get up and at them, the next Monday I'm still just as desperate and tired and beat up because the world cannot give me my significance. Okay? And so I give my life, I pour my strength into my own kingdom, which is I pour my life into the nine to five rather than the five to nine. What the Bible is saying is that the, the, the 9 to 5 exists for the 5 to 9, and the 5 to 9 is where the inheritance is. Now, here's the trick. The reason why men love to do things in the 9 to 5 is because, at least on the surface, it seems like it gets them glory. There's no glory for fathers. There's only sacrifice. There's only unthankfulness. There's only kids spitting in your face. There's no glory for that. So a man doesn't want to fail, right? So we don't want to fail. That's our least, that's like the curse itself. So we'd rather do something at least seems tangibly successful rather than fail at something that feels like it's unfruitful, right? And so what it's saying is the curse of man is I'm not doing anything unless it brings me glory. Like the reason why you're not as alert to your wife and your kids is because it doesn't bring you glory. As a matter of fact, what it is, it's not going to do anything for your name. He would have gotten an inheritance. That was where his inheritance should have gone. That was where he would have been in the Lord and he would have gotten a heavenly inheritance, let alone the Lord would have worked it out. But he's fearful because he doesn't want to sow into something that's not going to give him credit. And that is the crux. That is the crux of the, of the man's fear is that I'm going to sow into something and it's going to make me unfruitful. But that's the very irony of it is that 
Sowing into oblivion, sowing into something of obscurity that gives you no credit and no honor is, as a matter of fact, the purpose of manhood. It is the purpose to serve his kingdom and not our own and to be fruitful lest we only be successful. So this is the, this is the crux of what goes on for Onan. All right. Now, it says, uh, Judah, verse 11, then says to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like these other guys dropping dead, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. So, you know, um, it seems that psychologically, we're signing off, and even sociologically, that men are growing up later and later, right? It's like World War I, we were like 14 getting married, you know, having, you know, family, 18, okay, sure, go off to college. I mean, dudes aren't growing up, they're still just playing video games until we're 40 now, right? And it's not good. And so, I, so here's, here's the issue, is that, like, that 50-year-old bachelor, okay, so he looks like Matthew McConaughey, and he's 17, and women just throw themselves at, her, at him. And you think to yourself, that guy's really a man, he's really got it going, and we're all trying to be like, you know, Matthew McConaughey. And meanwhile, we don't get it, that Matthew McConaughey is, is, is losing his life. And I don't know the guy. He's sure he's great. But that 50-year-old bachelor is not doing good because the essence of sexuality is not unto itself. Man sees sex as the goal, and sex becomes the blessing, and then he has lots of sex with lots of people and realizes it's empty. And he misses his ticket because if it wasn't for sex, it wouldn't get him off the couch playing video games into being a husband and then that wouldn't have gotten him into being a father. And this is the blessing for, for, for dad. I'm not talking about just being biological. I'm talking about the reason why we exist is to, is to uh, make disciples and to be spiritual fathers. And so, so, if, so if, if little Jimmy over here, you know, spends, what, 10 years, 20 years on verse 9? He lives there. He thinks that he's, he's avoiding the curse. He's actually cursing himself. He's actually... He thinks he's gaining in his masculinity because he's avoiding failure and he's keeping glory unto himself, but he's losing it because the glory of a man is to be a father. I'm not telling you to go get married and have kids. I'm saying go serve. Go, be, go, be, um, go build something that's not about you. Go serve somebody. Go care for somebody. If you're a single person and you want to get married or you don't want to get married, it doesn't matter if you're dad or married. That's not what we're talking about. The, the essence of being a man to be Jesus is not to equate yourself with God, but lower yourself as a servant and serve in the margin. And until we do that, until we think that the purpose of our life is to get a great car and build a resume and go, you know, just fish or whatever it is that we think we're going to do, we're missing the blessing. And we'll be, we'll be the Hugh Hefner. We'll be the sad, gross man. That's the idea. Okay, so, she, so wait till Sheila grows, you know, wait till he grows up. Just wait till he's 20. No, wait till he's 30. Wait till he's 40. Then he can actually figure life out and self-actualize and serve. And it's like, from the minute that you... We're designed, you were designed to serve, to care, to protect, to, to multiply, you know, to be fruitful, to rule and to reign. And that just doesn't happen from serving yourself. So that's the curse. That's the trap. And so just one little note, you know, to ladies as well. They don't come out, they don't pop out leaders, <laughs> okay? We don't just come out of the womb at 18 ready to be spiritual leaders. So I'm not saying marry somebody spiritually backwards, but have a little margin for it. Like, it takes a little while to get off the Xbox, Okay? And, and you got to learn how to communicate, and it takes a while, and they're not, it's like, so just don't smother them, you know, and, and pray for them, put them next to Christian friends, turn on worship music, don't call them a failure with your body language or with your mouth, and pray for them, because you're not the Holy Spirit, and you don't want to marry a woman in the first place, you want to marry a man, and the only one that can change a man is the Holy Spirit, right? so, so don't marry handsome, you know, dark and handsome. Marry hungry and humble and maybe a little smart and you'll be okay.
Right, so that, that's the word, word of the wise. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, went all down to Mardi Gras again with his, with his drinking buddy, okay, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Agilamite, went with him. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to, to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of, uh, to Enam, which is um, on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though uh, Sheila was now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Okay, so how many women, right? This is, if this isn't a cautionary tale, have given up far more than that of their own soul and their own identity and their own mantle and their own spiritual gifting just to get a husband. The scripture says that they desire a husband, but the, the part, the, there's nothing wrong with desiring a husband. The problem is desiring a husband more than Jesus. To try and fill that ache and that craving and that need with, with somebody else other than Jesus, it's only going to bring the curse. And she's going to get his robe and his ring and his money, but she's not going to get a husband. She's going to get a baby, but she's not going to get a blessing. And this is what it would be for, for Eve, you know, to try and make Adam in her image. It's like we had to have a, enough fights, I guess, me and Kyrie, you know, to, to come to the conclusion like, you know, we're not the same. I, um, uh, our very first fight was on the way to our honeymoon. And some of you women, just wait for my punchline. Don't spoil it how... I'm the one that's wrong in this fight. And so, anyways, it's, it's going to come apparent by the time I get to the end of it. Basically, I'm learning as I go, okay? It takes a long time. You don't just pop out as a spiritual leader, you know, or whatever, as if I even am at this point. And so we're cruising down uh, to go down to, um, uh, to Florida, and we stop. Um, <laughs> we stop at a Motel 6. And um, I, can't even, I can't even save the punchline. There it is. And, and it, was a, it was a problem, and it's a conflict, but like, the essence of, of the conflict was awakening to me, was eye-opening to me, because in all honesty, I can sincerely tell you, like, I didn't have carelessness on my mind. I had adventure. The idea was like, hey, like, we're married. This is going to be fun. We're going to be on mission trips together. This is, we got to be able to, like, go rough it. We're going to backpack. And she's like, but we're on our honeymoon. That's stupid. You know what I'm saying? And so she won that one. But it identifies the crux of the situation is, like, it's the kingdom of Adam and the kingdom of Eve, and, and they're meant to serve the kingdom of heaven. Like, if we're not too careful, then it just becomes this domesticated thing, and Eve can make Adam in her image and make him safe and domesticated and think like her and want to talk for two hours at a time or something like that. Like, you know, like you didn't marry an Eve, you married an Adam. And, in, and he, oftentimes you're asking him to lead, and he is trying to lead, and he's afraid to fail, and it's really hard, but ultimately he's leading you in places you don't even want to go because God leads us in places we don't want to go, out of the comfort zone, out of the safety, out of the little niche, you know, and sometimes maybe not, everything doesn't have to be perfect, you know what I mean? And everything, you know, the house can't be 100% clean and we have to keep on moving and rolling with life and it doesn't make him lazy, it doesn't make him self-centered, it just means that he's not like you. I was watching, uh, this is another little eye-opening moment, this is probably, you know, that was 23 and now I'm 33, I'm slow with it, and, um, but I was picking up and I was watching this like cake decoration show, you know, and all the like ladies like, woo, we're making these cakes and then they like present it to the judges and all this kind of thing and I've gotten into it, I like it, and uh, at the very end, there's like these little henchmen that come out. They all look like Al Borland from uh, Home Improvement. And they all have like plaid shirts on. And they come out with a little saw and they like build this little cake stand and like put uh, the cupcakes on it. And Kyra and Rose are just loving it. They're like, look at this. This is so great. Look at all these cupcakes and how colorful it is. And I'm just like, I'm watching, you know, how they're building the thing or something. I don't know what I'm paying attention to, but not the same thing as they are. And it dawns on me. I mean, I just had a moment in time, guys. And I said, I, I was like, those two little guys, those two little Al Borlands, I mean, dad belly, 
just like a bad hairline, not a good looking dude. I said, this is my assumption, that because they serve and because they're nurturing and because they're helping her nurture and nourish what she's doing, you actually think that he's more sexy than Matthew McConaughey. Is that right? And she's like, 100% right. And I just cannot, guys, wrap my mind around how that is, right? But they're not wired that way. They just don't care as much as we think about our six-pack and our car. Like, it's just, that's like ugly to them. They hate that. They just, they want you to have a job and they want you to be responsible. Like, that's about it. That's the sexiest thing, you know, that you're doing, right? And so, but, but it's a process of realizing that, like, when I got married, I got married with me at the center. I got married at Rocky Balboa, and this is women, this is what guys are thinking. They got beat up all day at work. They got beat up in the world. And Adrian's just like putting a Band-Aid. That's the dream right there. It's like you want somebody that cares, that nurtures, that's not married to the kids, not married to the in-laws, that's still married to you, and cares, right? And so then it's this battle over, are we, is it working or is it keeping? Is it pioneering or is it farming time? And ladies, I'm just telling you, if you force your husband to farm all the time and never pioneer, and there's no adventure, and there's no risk, and there's no mission, he's going to check out. And you'll get his money. And you'll get his covering and you'll get his name, but you're not going to get his heart. You're not going to get the blessing. Because it's not a dream of Eden, of, of Eve. It's a dream of Jesus. It's the kingdom of heaven that has both working and keeping. It has both you know, prophecy and pastoring. It has both pioneering and farming. It has authoring and perfecting. It's, it's that whole process. And, and you can't have a house without a home, and you can't have a home without a house. And so some of this idea is just letting go of trying to make our spouse in the other one's image, right? So that's the idea. But this is, this is the big gauntlet. Like, it all comes down. So she changes herself. She puts her makeup on so thick and she wants that blessing so bad. She'll give anything for it and she'll, she'll marry some idiot and, you know, and then, and then be mad why he's as much as an idiot as he always was and then she'll criticize him forever trying to get him to do what she wants him to do. Okay, and verse 15 happens. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. That's how transactional the relationship got. For she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He gets older, they get younger. The third wife, the fourth wife, right? He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a goat from my flock. He said, uh, or, or he said will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. And he said, what pledge should I give you? And she says, your seal and your cord. So this is exactly how testosterone-driven this guy is. This is his ID card, his badge, his Credit card, he's like, here it all is, you know? He's just, he's out. He doesn't know what he's doing. Verse 43, seal on the cord and the staff in your hands. And she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her. And she became pregnant with him after she left. And she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes all again. So there it is. That's the gauntlet. Like, the kingdom of Adam is at hand, you know? And he has sex without the blessing. And he turns out to be a 50-year-old bachelor who has everything that he wants, and he's got his gym membership set up, and his house looks clean, and all that kind of stuff, but he doesn't love anybody else but himself. And he doesn't serve, he doesn't disciple, he doesn't lead a small group, he doesn't care for anybody, he doesn't care for widows and orphans, he's about him. Adam's about Adam. And he gets what he wants, but he's cursed for it. And Eve, she lives over here, and she settles, and she just, you know, um, you know, it says, Adam, Adam's passive, Eve moves from fear into control, and so she tries to create this little thing, this little image of Adam, in her own likeness and creates this little thing of perfection, but gets none of Adam. Gets, gets, his, gets his wallet, gets his identity, gets his ID card, but gets not the blessing. Gets a baby, gets no blessing. And so it is, the, the, this divided toxic home. And so this moment here of propitiation happens where it's, it's like this big kind of wake-up nightmare moment. Because if you remember, 
when, when Judah suggests that he wants to kill Joseph, the way that he covers for his sin is he dips Joseph's robe in goat's blood. So he wants to cover his sin with goats. He wants to cover his sin with effort, and I'll do better and try harder and, and pretend like it didn't really happen, and I'm not really on my way to be Hugh Hefner, and I don't really dream a perverted dream or whatever it is that it is. And so we just cover it up with goat's blood. And now he slept with his daughter-in-law. So he, basically this guy is a murderer and adulterer. He's killing his brother and sleeping with his daughter-in-law. He's just not a very savory character. But these are hyperboles. These are, these are nightmares to wake us up. This is who we could have, should have, and are. Right? Being. This is the idea. The nightmare exists to wake us up to his dream. We can't accept the dream until we understand the nightmare that we end, until we repent of the nightmare. And so just like he did before to cover his sin with a goat, now he's trying to clear his sin with this woman with another goat. See, I gave you your goat. That's what you wanted. And so now I'm fair with you, right? I mean, I just held back all the inheritance and the blessing and I you know, made you stay at home and take care of my kids and I just went over here and built my own kingdom and I never came home to you and I never served you. I never loved you, but I gave you a goat so you should be happy about it. This is what it is. And so we try to build our houses like the way we try to build our life, with our works, with our effort, and with our earning, and with our try harder, and reading more books, and doing all the things, and making our spouse do da 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 And the Bible's saying we should be trusting, because the only household that comes alive and resurrected and redeemed is the, is the house that trusts in Jesus. And so Hebrews 10 tells us in verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls or goats to take away sins. This is the reality. The reality is the reason why homes are broken, somewhat, is because we need to learn the Enneagram and learn how to talk to each other better in our differences. But a lot of the reason why it's broken is because there's sin there. And we don't need better communication, we need repentance. And, and so we're trying to throw goats at this thing. We're trying to throw, well, I need to talk to you more like this, and I'm going to budget it differently. And just, no, we're just selfish. And at some point, the salvation of the marriage is the repentance of the spouses. I'm making my own nightmare because I think that my strength exists for me. And I think that my husband exists for me. And I think that our household exists to make each other happy rather than holy, and we lose sight of the vision, which is to bring the kingdom of heaven, to repent and to believe to that dream. That's the dream. And until we come to Jesus, and we're just compromising between the kingdom of Adam and the kingdom of Eve, we'll never have the kingdom of heaven in our midst. And so there's this call, this big, oh, this big you know, um, revealing of the guilt that is in this relationship on both sides. Verse 25, and she was being brought out, and she sent a message to her father-in-law. She says, I'm pregnant by the man that owns these. This is a big, what, Dr. Phil moment with that little envelope? That was a lie, you know? Like, gives us the big envelope. Like, who's the dad? It's, it's in the envelope. Go ahead and open it up. The seal and the cord and the staff are there. We're more like Hugh Hefner than we think. I mean, he's extreme. I get it. But we still think sex is the blessing. And we still think we exist, you know, for our wife to make us happy. And she doesn't. And, and, and so in so doing, we chase after a blessing that's empty and we forget the blessing right in front of us. Our blessing is to be fathers. Our blessing is to be mothers. Our blessing is to serve and to create a kingdom around Jesus and not around ourselves. And we'll, we'll just hit nightmare after nightmare after nightmare until it wakes us up. So that's it. Judah makes this recognition. She, he actually repents. He doesn't just say, I'm sorry that you're sorry or whatever. Like, he repents. He stops. He turns the way. And his whole family and the generations are going to change because of it. Judah recognizes she says, she's more righteous than I. He prophesies it truly that Tamar is one of the four women that shows up in the lineage of Jesus. How does he use screw up incesting, what, father-in-laws? That's crazy. Jesus' great-great-grandfather came from a father-in-law sleeping with the daughter-in-law as a prostitute? As if God isn't changing our situation around, as if God couldn't use our life to change a broken thing and make it beautiful? This is the nature. He's the author of the story. While we plot, he makes plans. And there's no plot that we can conceive that he can't plan through. And he's not only just working around evil, he's using it 
for our good and for his glory. And he gets the credit, not us. Verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And she, gave, um, and she was giving birth. One of them put out his hand. So the midwife uh, took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. I was, uh, met somebody at a wedding yesterday, and they were twins. They had a C-section. He said like, he got like, picked up first but then put back in, so he lost the credit of being the firstborn is what he said. But he was the, what, the Perez in this situation, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. Verse 29, but when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and his name was Zerah. Um, all, all marriages are impossible without Jesus. The issue of marriage, the dream of marriage, is not just a nice tuxedo and a cake. It is a heart-wrenching, soul-wrenching pursuit of years and years of years of trusting Jesus for things you care about most. There's no such thing as a painless marriage or a vulnerable marriage or a, a marriage that doesn't need forgiveness, a marriage without sin. When we sign up for marriage, we're signing up to see God turn sin into glory somehow by his cross. That's what we've signed up for. And if we don't want that, then we should try something else because that's not, that is what, where we are in this garden, in this, in this nightmare that we live in as he wakes us to his dreams. So, so this is what Paul says about marriage, okay? So Paul says that marriage, the engine of marriage isn't romance, it's submission. The engine of, of marriage is not good calendaring or even great counseling, it's submission. Submission, it's, it's me yielding myself to you. The husband yielding his needs and his preferences to his wife. And so in finding the blessing. Now, he's, he's thinking that if I hide myself from her, I'll get blessed over here because I'll keep her from getting my strength from me. And she'll keep asking and bugging me and she'll never be happy. And so I just give up on her because she's just a mess. And so I'm going to go and keep her as happy as I can so I don't look like a divorced person, but inside my house I'm divorced. Right? So Paul's saying in the middle of that temptation to submit. He's a jerk. He's not worthy of respect. He is nothing like Jesus. And Paul says submit. So Paul says to trust. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. That's the key statement there. Not just because you're a nice person, but because trusting him is a way that you trust the Lord. Who has more control of your life ultimately, though? Your husband or him? That's, what's, that's the question. Like when you, when you pull on him, uh, are, are, are you believing ultimately that he's in control or the Lord's in control? That's the, that's the question. It's his sovereignty that's at stake. Okay, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. For as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything they do. Okay, so I've been around a lot of guys, and they are not trustworthy. They are not savory people. They are thinking about themselves. You, you suspect it, don't you? You think that he is an egomaniac, and he kind of is. Okay, so that's, that's the reality. You're, you're being asked in, in, in the um, construction of the church, like in the construction of the family unit in and of itself, to trust somebody that's untrustworthy. But the, but the command comes with a promise. And the promise is this, that when you're trusting your husband, you're not so much trusting him, you're trusting Christ's work in him. And you're trusting that he's perfect, he's the author, and what he starts he's going to complete. And even when your husband is not acting like Jesus, it's not trusting that he's going to get his act together. It's trusting the Holy Spirit is going to make him like Jesus. And that's ultimately all that will ever make a marriage work. There are absolutely going to be moments that trusting Jesus, trusting your husband makes no sense whatsoever. And so um, knowing something that's wrong with your husband and becoming the Holy Spirit on that issue is two separate things. And so praying for your husband and um, 
calling out Christ's likeness in him and speaking well of him to your kids and speaking well of him to, to your parents, like, that's your role. But you're not in the driver's seat of the Holy Spirit in his life. And him getting changed by Jesus isn't your responsibility and isn't therefore your authority anyways. And ultimately, your blessing can't come from him. It comes from Jesus. And the way that you access his blessing is not by becoming bitter and resentful towards your husband, but trusting Jesus in him. And that's a big question to ask. As the father of your children, do you trust the Holy Spirit is enough to change that man? I mean, we're not just talking about a, a random, arbitrary guy. You're talking about the guy you know. I mean, you know him. That would be a miracle. He's saying that's what you can trust me for. That's what you're trusting in, that I'm going to be taking care of this. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by washing of the water in the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, and after all, no one hates their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. There's no me against her. There's no winners and losers. There's no she's not okay, but he's okay. If she's not okay, he's not okay. That's it. There's oneness. You wouldn't hurt yourself, right? You wouldn't shoot yourself in the foot, and therefore, you hurting your wife is the same exact uh, foolishness. So, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and become one flesh. The plan is still the same, even in the middle of our plots and our nightmares. And this was a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you should love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. So you're pulling in, it's five o'clock, and you're exhausted. And you're Rocky Balboa, and you're just getting beat up all day. And you just want your wife to care and to listen and to, like, build you up. And you come in, and she's thinking nothing of that. She's so frustrated with the kids, and the homeschool stuff is crazy. And she isn't, she's not ready to, like, pray for you. She's, like, ready to beat you up. Like, why didn't you mow the lawn or something? What is wrong with you, you know? And so you just want to clock out. You're like, forget it. There's no glory in this. I don't want to invest in something that brings me no credit. Unless you know Jesus. And this becomes the question, husbands, at 5 o'clock, because your inheritance does not come from 9 to 5. It comes from 5, 5 to 9. And you're going to come home, and the question has to be not who's lovely and lovable around here. It's how much did he love me? That's how much you should love your wife. How much should I forgive my wife? How much did he forgive you? As Christ loves, we're not treating the other person the way that they treat us. We're treating them the way that he has treated us. And so this is how the covenant works. So, so Adam and Eve created their own kingdoms, but, but Jesus, the image bearer, the great one who purifies his bride perfectly, makes a kingdom of heaven. The one that can bring life where there's death, to bring revival in Greenville, to bring care for orphans and widows and all these sorts of things. Our life doesn't exist for ourselves and our own dreams. It exists for him. And our marriages um, will be the first altar that that will need to turn around on for our kids' sake and for our sake that we wouldn't have biological health without spiritual death. And so to single men, if you're looking to get married or if you're not, the best thing to do is serve. Your strength does not exist for yourself. And so serving will put you in the place to go meet a girl that you want to get married to. And it'll prepare you for marriage because marriage is basically 100% serving. <laughs> I hate to tell you that. It's 100% serving, but that's the blessing. That you would live into a legacy that's longer than you, that's bigger than you, that's not just about, you know, um, you know how much money you can get or how much accolades and how, much, how many raises you get. And same thing with, with, with single women, it's serve. You know, that's the idea, is that um, desiring a husband and desiring being married is not a bad thing. Just don't desire more than Jesus because that's going to put you in a transactional relationship and get you frustrated and bitter and resentful. And so wherever you are, single or married, um, the engine of marriage is submission, and it is trusting Jesus. How much should I trust my spouse? As much as I trust Jesus to work in and through and around my life and my spouse, to love and care and support and nurture. How much should I love my spouse and forgive my spouse? How much did Jesus love and forgive me? This is the idea, that the world is looking for who Jesus is, and they ought to be looking at marriage and saying, 
Not that it's perfect, but look how he loves her. Look how she serves him. This is who Jesus must be. This is what the Trinity must be that we're invited into. All right, so a couple of intentional questions, and I'll invite the prayer team to come forward and the worship team as well. But real simple, right, for a man and for a woman, does my life, and in which ways does my life, reveal biological life but spiritual death? We um, are doing great with our budgets, and, you know, child care is going great, and school is great, and grades great. Do people pray? Do people forgive? Do people repent? Do people read? Do people build other, uh, others up or tear them down? Do they witness to their neighbors? Do they share the gospel with vigor? That's what spiritual life is about. And so when we're so busy with, you know, travel team, and we don't have time for discipleship, we're sowing spiritual death. So from the man's side, because we're accountable for our role and not theirs, where am I keeping my strength like Judah instead of giving it like Jesus? That is the brand new question for man. It's going to be thankless, and she's not going to accept it, and you don't have enough. That's the idea. You're exhausted because you don't have enough, and, and that's the Lord waking you up to needing him to be enough. And that is actually the altar that we're being led to, to be exhausted, and we should be exhausted as men. Where am I uh, keeping my strength like Judah instead of giving it like Jesus, trusting in the inheritance of the nations? And then finally, for women, where am I taking the blessing like Tamar instead of trusting the blessing like Jesus? That he is the one ultimately that gives the blessing of life and you don't want daughters and sons and uncles and aunts that don't know Jesus. And you don't want to build a life around your dream and your perfect household that doesn't involve Jesus at the center because a messy, broken, in debt, impoverished household that has Jesus is richer than anything else. So that's the dream that we might get waking up from the nightmare to live in that dream. So... Um, yeah, I invite you guys to stand. And so, Lord Jesus, would you have your way in our hearts uh, this morning, Lord, and this afternoon, Lord, I pray that you would really just bless, do a great work in marriages and in future marriages and even in past ended marriages uh, in Jesus' name, that you would redeem all things to bring life where there's death, Lord. Wake us up from our nightmare that we might surrender to you early and often, Lord, that we would come to that finish line and realize the person that we could have, should have, and would have been um, is not the person you made us to be. Thank you for saving us, sanctifying us, filling us with your Holy Spirit. You're not done working yet. And so I know that um, what the enemy meant for evil, you are turning for good, even without us and despite us. In Jesus' name, mighty name, everybody said, amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.